This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Now, if you would, turn with me your Bible to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, we're looking tonight. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of God. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray uh, now, Lord, as we study it this evening, for your grace, for clarity of mind and uh, alertness, Father, uh, to, the, to the words of this psalm. And Father, we pray that you administer through it your grace to us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you feel guilty for? What is it that when you wake up in the night and remember it makes a knot in your stomach? What is it you've done that you've occasionally looked over your shoulder figuratively or maybe even literally to see if anyone saw you, if anyone knew? What is it that causes you to scan the expression of your friend, of your husband, of your wife for some sign of whether they're on to you? What is it that causes you to feel guilty? You see, guilt is to the soul what rust is to metal. Guilt is to our relationship with God what cancer is to the body. And the good news, though, is that guilt is what the gospel is all about. Not inflicting it, removing it. You see, the gospel addresses our actual guilt, objective guilt before God, 
for our violation of his laws. Not guilt as a theological proposition, not guilt as a psychological construct, but actual guilt, of actually having broken God's laws, of being guilty as charged. The gospel addresses that objective guilt that we actually and really do have before God, whether we feel guilty or not. But often we do feel guilty. But the good news is the gospel also addresses our guilt feelings when our conscience accuses us for things that we have done. When it throws in our face past actions. You see, the gospel not only removes our actual guilt in Christ, but it also quiets the conscience. It brings peace to the heart. But it does more than just move us back to a neutral position where we're forgiven, no longer need to feel guilty. But it actually takes that guilt and removes it and replaces it with joy in the Lord. Now, as you read through the book of Psalms, there are two Psalms. Uh, where David addresses this whole matter of his own guilt, his guilt before God, and how God in his grace addresses his guilt. One of those psalms is Psalm 51. And that psalm records beautifully, uh, magnificently, David's prayer of confession to the Lord for his sin. Psalm 32, on the other hand, describes David's experience, this this existential experience that he went through of moving from crushing guilt to irrepressible joy in the Lord. I suggest to you, we need to know both of those psalms. Both should be familiar to you. Psalm 51, Psalm 32, uh, you can do no better sometimes in, in prayers of confession than just praying through Psalm 51, taking David's words, making them your own. Tonight, as we look at Psalm 32, we want to trace that, that, that movement from his guilt to his joy, but not just to, as an exercise of seeing what happened to David, but of seeing what God can do in us. And as David talks about this in Psalm 32, he describes it as occurring basically through three phases or three steps, and we want to look at those tonight. The first uh, step that, Jesus, or that uh, David describes here is that of forgiveness uh, from God in verses 1 through 5. This, this, this whole phase of actually experiencing forgiveness. He begins in verse 1 and 2 with a general statement right up front, uh, kind of giving the end away at the beginning, you know, giving you up front where you're going to end up. He says in verse 1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The word that's usually translated uh, that we read in our English versions as blessed actually comes from two different words in Hebrew. There's a word in Hebrew that has the idea of pronouncing a blessing upon. Uh, but there's another word that's, that has more the idea of, of the, the happiness, the felicity of a person who is in an enviable or, or delightful position. And that's the word that David uses here. I don't think happy is an inappropriate translation, and it does capture something of the sense of what David uh, is saying here, that the person who has experienced these things, it's a happy person. He's a person to be be envied in a sense because he has something that's really good, something to celebrate. And David exclaims of that blessedness, that happiness of the person whose sin has been removed by God's grace. 
It's interesting in these verses, he uses three words for sin. He speaks of transgression, uh, which even in English has the idea of crossing a boundary, crossing a line, uh, has the idea of active rebellion against God. Another word he uses here is that of sin, which in Hebrew as in English, sin is just kind of the general term for wrongdoing. Although the, the Hebrew word has the idea of, of missing the mark or falling short of the goal, like shooting an arrow at a target and it never makes it. It just hits the ground before it gets there, uh, is the idea behind the, the Hebrew word here translated sin. And the third word he uses, iniquity, uh, has the, 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 the term has the word of twistedness or distortion, something being bent out of shape. And as David uses these three words, he's basically just expressing the, the comprehensive range of his sin, just using several words here to indicate the depth of that sin. But he also uses here uh, three words to describe how that sin was dealt with. He says, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, against whom the Lord counts no in iniquity. Transgression was forgiven. The word has the idea of lifting up, taking away, lifting off of. It's God taking that, that guilt, that sin, and lifting it off of us. He says that his sin was covered. The idea of it being hidden, it's covered, it's no longer seen, it's no longer visible, it's no longer what presents itself when someone looks at you. He describes how the iniquity was no longer counted against him. You almost hear the accounting reference there. It's no longer something in his debit column. This thing has been cleared. It's been written off. It's no longer there. So three words for sin, but also three words that describe how God has dealt with his sin. Great as that is, the blessing isn't just in sin being dealt with, in this, this rebellion being removed, but it's enabled, being able to be honest, as David describes it here. He says, in whose spirit there is no deceit. One of your greatest weapons in a fight against sin is the desire for a clear conscience. Happy is that person who has nothing to hide. He has to wonder if he's being found out. He has to wonder if someone knows. Uh, that person is very happy. That person is very free who has a clear conscience. It's striking that Paul in Acts 24, 16 says that he always strives to maintain a clear conscience toward God and man. He wants to have that freedom of a clear conscience, certainly before God, who sees everything in his heart. And he wants to have a clear conscience before people as well, so that no one can bring some charge against him. No one can come and discredit him as a follower of Christ or as a minister of the gospel. That's why David says, blessed is that person in whom there is no deceit, someone who can be an open book, someone who is honest and upfront and has nothing to hide. There is great freedom. There is great happiness in that place. But there's a problem. Problem is that David was hiding. There was plenty of deceit in his spirit because, you see, David's sin was not only comprehensive as described by those verbs uh, not only was it rebellion, not only was he falling short of the standard of God's word, not only was he twisted, but he was also being dishonest. It was deep. His sin was uh, graphic. 
It included adultery. It included murder to cover up the adultery, not by David's own hand, but certainly by his plan. David had a lot to hide, and because of it, David was miserable. Notice how he describes the misery uh, of that, that, that sin and its guilt and the deceit, the, the secret life, the double life he was living. Verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Have you ever felt that way? Do David's words resonate with you here? Isn't that what it feels like to feel guilty? To feel like there's something that people can't know about you? Well, David did. He kept silent. He refused. When I kept silent, he refused to confess what he had done, either to God or anybody else. He was dying on the inside. He says he groans inwardly, that inward pain. It was like his bones were shriveling away. His energy, his zest for life was, he says, evaporating like a puddle under a July Georgia sun. But David kept silent. And that pressure kept building like rising water behind a dam. And then Nathan the prophet faithful prophet of God, came to David, and he bravely confronted David about his sin. Now what happened? That dam broke. Second Samuel 12.13 records David's confession. Here it is. I have sinned against the Lord. That's all he said. That's all he needed to say. There was no explaining, there was no rationalizing, there was no excusing, there was no hiding. It was just the simple, honest truth. Something that had been missing from David's life for a considerable amount of time. Just the honest truth about what he had done and against whom ultimately he had done it. Yes, David had sinned against Bathsheba. David had sinned against her husband Uriah. David had sinned against his kingdom. But David knew ultimately who he had sinned against. That's why in Psalm 51, David could say, Against you, Lord, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. For the first time in a long time, David was an honest man. I have sinned against the Lord. Here in Psalm 32, he puts it this way. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Notice again, the three words from verses 1 and 2. Sin, iniquity, transgression. But along with them now, there are three other words. Acknowledge, did not cover, confess. You see, no more deceit, no more lying to God, lying to others, even lying to himself, just putting out there the truth about who he really is. It's a scary thing to do. Because it puts you in a most vulnerable position, when people know the truth about you, when they know who you really are, when they know what you really are like, it's a scary thing. 
It's a frightening thing. What would happen? What would happen with David? You know, would God strike him down on the spot? Would Nathan the prophet spit on him in contempt? No. No sooner than David uttered those few words, no sooner they were out there, than Nathan the prophet responds to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Or as David simply says to the Lord and of the Lord in Psalm 32, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David confessed his sin. What did he find? Grace. Grace of God pouring out on him. Grace perhaps as he had never experienced it before. And grace he would not have experienced if he continued hiding, if he continued running, if he continued this double life of deception. He took that scary step of confessing it, acknowledging it. And what he finds is grace. What he finds is mercy. That God's grace through the death of his descendant, Jesus, his greater son, God's grace had dealt with his sin. Now, the consequences of his sin would be severe, as they often are. Big sin often has big consequences in this world. But guilt, that cancer of his soul, that robber of his joy, was gone. And he was a new man. We see, that's exactly what Christ has done for us. Because Jesus died in the place of the sinner. God can forgive Because Jesus lived a righteous life for the believer. My sin is covered, is hidden by his obedience, by his righteousness. Because God's justice was poured out on Jesus, that substitute sin bearer. God's justice is satisfied. And God no longer counts my sin against me. What happens when we come to the Lord? When we say, Father, I confess I'm nothing but a bundle of sin. I have no righteousness. I have nothing to offer you. I'm terrified of standing before you. I am a sinner. I have violated your laws all over the place. And I throw myself on your mercy. What do we find? We find mercy. We find grace. We find that God removes our sin. He pardons the guilt. And he gives us, himself gives us that righteousness that we need, but can never provide for ourselves. Well, David has talked about this forgiveness, and then he moves on to another phase here. After talking about forgiveness out of this misery of his guilt and grace that relieves that guilt, he then goes on to speak about what logically follows, theologically follows, and that is his relationship to God, his forgiveness by God. But then in verses 6 through 9, this relationship with God. You know, all too often, we evangelical Christians talk about Uh, what Jesus did, and the forgiveness of our sins so we can go to heaven as though that's all there is. Now, that's certainly a huge part of it, and we're we're grateful for that. We're, We're thankful for that. We do want to be forgiven for our sins. We don't want to be in hell. We do want to go to heaven. But a lot of the time, that almost smacks of self-interest. And it is. Who wants to be in hell when we could be in heaven? Ticket paid by another. Absolutely. But what is the point of forgiveness? It's not just so we can escape hell, but it is so that we are stored to a relationship with the God we were created to know, so that we can know Him, so that we're restored 
back into that fellowship with God. That's why in, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul can speak of gospel bringing not forgiveness, but reconciliation, the restoration of a broken relationship. You see, our salvation is so much more than just a legal transaction. You know, not guilty, you may go now. But the restoration of a relationship that has been broken by that sin. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that their message is this. We implore you for Christ's sake. Be reconciled to God. Come to Christ who died to remove that separation between you and the God you were made to know. The God apart from whom nothing is right. Nothing is as it should be. No matter how comfy your life is in this world, you're still missing the whole point, which is to know God and glorify and enjoy him forever. Nothing this world offers can, can substitute for that or make up for that. That's why Paul says we beg you to be reconciled to God. You see, we are forgiven. It is a legal, judicial transaction. But it is also a very personal tra- transaction, as David describes here, to restore us to this relationship. And you see, now that this barrier of guilt, both the objective guilt, but also those feelings of guilt are gone, David can begin to enjoy God and draw near to God once more. Guilt is a huge problem in the Christian life. Even for a, a, someone who is trusted in Christ, whose sins are forgiven, if we still feel guilt, if we still feel somehow that God is accusing us, it hinders, it, it, it hurts our relationship to God. I, um, in this book, Discipline of Grace, which the women are studying in the, the Tuesday morning and evening Bible studies, Jerry Bridges really puts his finger on it, uh, talking about loving God. It's this, uh, it's, it's the chapter on obeying the great commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says, our love to God can only be a response to his love for us. If I do not believe God loves me, I cannot love him. To love God, I must believe that he is for me, not against me, and that he accepts me as a son or daughter, not a slave. And then a little farther, he says, he's talking about our conscience and how the conscience is a useful thing. It exposes sin. It brings sin to our attention. But of the need to preach the gospel to our consciences. Yes, I've sinned. Yes, I'm guilty. But I've confessed that and I'm forgiven. He says this same tender conscience can load us down with guilt. And when we're under that burden and sense of condemnation, it is difficult to love God or to believe that he loves us. He says, this means we must continually take those sins that our consciences accuse us of to the cross and plead cleansing blood of Jesus. We want our consciences to be sensitive. We want them to work. But when we've taken that sin to the cross and asked God's forgiveness, you can tell your conscience to be quiet. That's been addressed. That's been dealt with. You see, that's where David was. The first five verses describe his awareness that God loves him, that God has forgiven as we know it, in Christ, that all of his sin has been atoned for, and that relationship is open, it's free. God no longer has for him anything but love, anything but acceptance, anything but a welcome. There may be accusations, but they're not coming from God. And so the the door to relationship is there. What a delight that must have been to David. You know, the, the psalmist of Israel, the shepherd boy, 
who could write of the Lord's protection and care as his shepherd, separated from his shepherd by the sin in his life and the guilt that's there and having that removed as he confessed it and God forgave it. And there was reconciliation and that reunion with God that was life giving. What does the forgiven man or woman do with God? You run to him. You run to him as the prodigal ran to his father. The father receiving him with open arms, running to him to welcome him, to receive him. That's our father. That's God's response to you when you come to him in Christ. He welcomes you. And David mentions here three aspects particularly of this restored relationship. Praying to God. How do you think David's prayer life was while he was covering up this sin of adultery and murder? I suspect not very good. Listen to what he says. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Praying to God. Protection of God. Surely in the rush of great waters, those waters shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And then learning from God. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. I can't ever read that verse without thinking of a particular person. You probably know who I'm thinking of. A woman in Clinton, South Carolina, where we used to be, by the name of Joanne. She would frequently refer to this verse. She thought this verse was in the Bible for her because she saw herself. As that mule, he was constantly needing the bit and bridle and just always afraid that was about her. Probably one of the least likely people about whom this verse would pertain, but, um, but she saw it as, as, she saw herself as being described here. David basically says, don't be stubborn. You know, go to the Lord. The Lord says, I will instruct you. I'll teach you in the way you should go. I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. Not in some detached way, the Lord says, but looking at you with your weaknesses, with your needs, with your concerns, and teaching you and instructing you, discipling you. You see, the Lord takes an interest in every one of us as his disciple. Not just a generic one program fits all, but a customized plan of discipleship that may include the trials that God brings into your life. But he says, with my eye upon you, I will counsel you. But don't be like that horse or mule. It has to be curbed with bit and bridle. Don't be stubborn. Don't be difficult. You see, we draw near to God in prayer. We thank God for his protection, not just from physical enemies, but spiritual ones. As Jesus said to his disciples, watch and pray so that you don't enter into temptation. You know, be teachable. Don't be stubborn. So that God does have to correct you with severe mercies, like that bit, like that bridle. Don't be like the foolish young man. Proverbs 5, of whom it was said in Proverbs 5, at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. Don't come to the end of your life and say, well, if only I had listened, if only I had learned. Learn from the Lord. Learn from His Word, from those who teach His Word. The Lord is a patient and capable teacher. And that's what David is saying here. But then the third phase. We've gone from forgiveness from God or forgiven by God to relationship with God now, restored and enjoyed 
now that the barrier not only of objective guilt, but of those feelings of guilt are removed and addressed. And from all of that, we move then in the third part, verses 10 and 11, to joy in God. Look at what David says. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. He speaks that with conviction. And you and I can probably offer a hearty amen to that. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. How much better is that than a guilty conscience? Trusting in the Lord, trusting that his way is best, trusting in the word of the Lord rather than the lies of temptation and sin. David calls us to share this joy with him. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Upright through our obedience to God's word? Yes. But even more so, upright, righteous, in Christ Jesus. You see, no one has a better reason to be glad. No one has a better reason to rejoice. No one has a better reason to shout with joy than the Christian forgiven by God in relationship with God, rejoicing in God. Even when times are hard, glad in the Lord, absolutely. Glad in The Lord, even when circumstances are painful, rejoicing in the Lord. Why? Because the rust is gone. Because the cancer's been cured. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for joy. Thank you, Lord, that we have every reason for joy, even in a world that hurts, even with disappointment, even with illness, even with injury. We have every reason to rejoice, Father, because our greatest enemy, our greatest affliction, guilt before you, guilt in our own hearts, has been addressed and removed by your gospel. Father, I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters here tonight that we would know that joy this week, that you would bring to our minds as we read your word, as we pray, and even as we go about the duties of the day, the magnificent position we are in as your sons and daughters, forgiven in relationship with you, with every reason to rejoice. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake and for his glory. Amen.